and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. Today we're speaking with Julian Spromberg and Nat Schultz of the Northwest Fishery Science Center in Seattle, Washington, which is part of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Spromberg and Schultz authored a paper in the October 2011 issue of IEAM, and the paper estimates future population declines of wild coho salmon in the Pacific Northwest. That decline was estimated based on high rates of premature mortality in adult coho salmon, and that has been occurring since the late 1990s. Julianne and Nat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Nat, let's begin with you. Could you briefly describe the phenomenon of pre-spawn mortality for our listeners? So what it is, where it occurs, and why it appears to occur only in coho salmon. Sure. Uh, the phenomenon occurs among adult coho salmon returning to spawn in urban watersheds in North America. These returns occur in the fall months. Uh, coho spawners in urban streams show initial symptoms that include loss of orientation, surface swimming, and gaping, followed by a loss of equilibrium and death. And the affected coho die relatively quickly, within a few hours, usually. Uh, the female carcasses are full of eggs, and we use these counts to calculate annual losses for different watersheds. In the greater Seattle area, in most years, the loss rates for a particular drainage are usually more than 50% of the entire run. I should mention also that coho are not particularly abundant in Seattle area urban streams, so a run size might include a couple of dozen salmon all the way up to potentially 200 adult coho or more, depending on the year. Our team has monitored the phenomena closely in Puget Sound streams for the past decade, and prematurely dying spawners have been reported anecdotally in urban watersheds from San Francisco to Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, our team has not seen comparable die-offs of spawners for other salmon, such as chum and chinook, and we also haven't seen fish kills for resident fish, including juvenile coho salmon, stickleback, and, and others that are in Seattle area streams year-round. So it, it remains a mystery at this time as to why only adult coho seem to be affected by this phenomenon. Thanks for that answer, Nat. Julian, the study examines pre-spawn mortality in coho in urban streams near the city of Seattle, Washington. How might the mortality observed in these localized populations actually impact the larger population of coho living in the Puget Sound Basin? Well, it goes back to basic evolutionary biology of salmon in that they have a very low but consistent level of adult straying upon return. So even though most fish will return to their um, natal stream to spawn, a small percentage, sometimes 5-10%, will stray into other areas looking for other uh, habitats. And so we basically get a dynamic of different populations that have a, a low level of exchange between them. And so they're genetically linked at usually pretty low level. But um, when it's a balanced exchange, not a problem. And some they can compensate some. But what we were examining here is that if we wanted to look at with this modeling exercise was how as we change the landscape with human development and urban growth, if we were to spread the pre-spawn mortality among populations that were currently not experiencing that, how that change in straying dynamic through the metapopulation could alter the overall metapopulation abundances. So basically, as we're if you've got a currently viable area such as many of the northern areas around Puget Sound, there would be no problem with compensation back and forth exchange of strays between populations. But if you create sinks in some of the 
populations, which are areas that are accepting migrants but not providing an equal amount of, of migrants to the other populations, that the source populations would be supplementing them. At the same time, those source populations would not be receiving migrants, and so they would, could also be impacted. So we, we could be seeing two different things here, which one of which is masking an impact because of strays from source populations, as well as a drawdown and resulting impact on populations that are even experiencing preschool mortality. And that was basically what we wanted to look at is as the human population expands, if we spread this phenomenon of preschool mortality throughout other viable populations and metapopulations, what could be the long-term impacts of that? And one of the most interesting things we came up with um, was that it didn't matter as much as the level of preschool mortality, if it was 25% or 75%, it was the geographic area that was experiencing preschool mortality. So how much of the habitat of metapopulation was it covering was impacted by preschool mortality had a bigger effect than the actual percent of preschool mortality. And that was a, a big surprise. It's not that you'd have to have at least one big population as a source for everybody to get the entire metapopulation remain viable. You needed to make sure that there was enough habitat overall available spread among the different subpopulations to provide sufficient habitat. And so that was one, one of the very surprising things that we came up with this study. Well, so geography really does play an important role, a pivotal role. Extremely, yeah. It's not just the numbers and the uh, specific number of populations or the number of habitat points. It's it's overall how much is being impacted. It's not if we have really one really bad population of a, a small geographic area that's being impacted at a very high percentage. It may not really be that big of a problem if there's a large area of the meta population that isn't impacted at all, and they can compensate for that. But it also makes it very difficult to know what's going on because, especially those small areas, you're not going to see it. You're going to have some masking with the strays, and so you may not see the impacts right away, uh, which could be a danger in, in trying to determine whether or not we have a problem. Thank you. So this question is also for you, Julian. As you're probably aware, many people are skeptical about using mathematical modeling to predict population abundance over time for such a complex system. If you think about it, even meteorologists can't predict the weather accurately beyond the next few days, much less multiple decades, which is the time scale of your predictions of coho salmon populations. So could you comment on the accuracy of your model predictions? Well, first off, the context that we are using to establish our impact is a very robust biological context, and this preschool mortality is having such a large effect on the dynamics of the population structure that our goal is to look at overall trends over a long period of time, not necessarily to predict absolute number of individuals that are going to be returning. We represented that in some of the graphics, but try to be careful to present it as a proportion of what have a control. So we're looking at the difference. Most of our models now are looking at the change in population growth rate, but that's a lot harder for folks to grasp very quickly. So in order to look at our intended audience, um, resource managers, general public, we wanted to give them something that they could be very relatable to and understand number of fish coming back. And so that's why it's represented that way. Um, we're in no way trying to say this is the number of individuals that's going to return. We also include variability in these models based on literature values to try to say plus or minus X number of uh, standard deviations so that we're not saying we're going to find 324 fish in this creek. We're going to find an estimate of what it was, what we think it will be relative to what would be there without this level of impact. And because this impact is so straightforward and the models are very simplistic in that manner, um, we're not looking at a lot of highly detailed changes other than preschool mortality. We're, we're saying other things are remaining the same, which is also is a major assumption. 
um, which we discuss in part of the paper. Okay, thank you, Julianne. Can I add to that as well? Go ahead. So the long-range forecast that the models are producing, uh, while, while they're interesting, they're not, that wasn't really the point of the, of the modeling exercise. Essentially, what we were trying to do was to say, all other things being equal, you know, looking ahead in the Puget Sound region to regional projections for human population growth, we're adding more people to the region. And as we do this, we're making more and more watersheds look like the creeks around Seattle. And the point of the modeling was to say, holding all these other parameters equal, if we were to suddenly start to see rates of spawn and mortality in currently healthy watersheds with the Port Abundant Coho, what are likely to be the population level consequences over the next 5 to 10 to 20 to 50 years? The outcome of the modeling really is to draw some insights that will be useful for resource managers to uh, anticipate how local changes in watersheds and local losses of spawners are likely to affect a larger coho population across a greater spatial range. Okay, thanks for that, Nat and Julian. So then these next two questions are going to be for Nat. Okay. Nat, your lab has conducted a lot of forensic work to elucidate the causes of pre-spawn mortality in coho. Could you briefly fill us in on any of the findings? Sure. Our team has been collecting uh, forensic data for uh, affected fish in urban creeks over the course of the past eight years. Uh, we've also been collecting adult coho from regional hatcheries, from non-urban streams, and from the estuary along the Seattle waterfront. And the latter are adult salmon uh, that are caught before they enter urban creeks to spawn. So again, over the years, we've looked at something in excess of 800 carcasses. And from these data, we've ruled out a number of factors. First of all, the fish that are dying appear to be in good physical condition. Uh, they've shown no evidence of pathology to the gills or to other target organs. They also do not show consistent signs of disease in terms of exposure to pathogens. And so it doesn't look like some of the familiar bacterial and other diseases that are known to sometimes kill salmon are involved in this particular phenomenon. We've also done a lot of water quality monitoring, and we have managed to rule out uh, conventional parameters such as temperature and dissolved oxygen and ammonia, for example, as causal factors as well. And so, again, these appear to be otherwise healthy fish that are ocean bright. They're coming into urban creeks, and they're overwhelmed in a relatively short time frame by something related to water quality. But it isn't conventional water quality, and it's not that the fish are in poor physical condition or otherwise infected with a pathogen before they come into these urban creeks. And so this has led us, through this weight of evidence approach, to look for other answers, most notably other types of potentially toxic contaminants that are common in stormwater runoff in urban watershed. Do you have plans for future research or ongoing research? We do. We have ongoing research right now. First of all, we have a parallel study to this population modeling analysis where we looked at urban drainages uh, for which we've had reasonably abundant coho. And even though these creeks are all urban creeks, uh, the fish do better in some streams than others. And so we did a land cover land use analysis and we found that the severity of the fish kills is proportionally greater in watersheds that have in more impervious surfaces, basically more, more pavement. And so uh, the combination of that finding with the forensic data pointing to an exposure to hydrocarbons and metals, both of which, both classes of compounds uh, are known, for example, to target the respiratory system in salmon and also potentially the cardiovascular system. So it's plausible that mixtures of metals and hydrocarbons could be driving this process. And then again, having the, the, the backup information from the land use analysis has led us into basically try to repeat 
the phenomena, or reproduce the phenomena, with artificial street runoff. So we are now in the process of making street runoff cocktails that contain environmentally relevant concentrations of metals and pHs. And we are working with a source of coho and Puget Sound that are otherwise healthy. So like the fish in, in our urban creeks, they're returning from saltwater to a freshwater stream system. And we're going to be using working with these fish to see if we can reproduce the mortality phenomena with cocktails of hydrocarbons and metals. And that work is ongoing this fall. We are also in the process of validating our uh, land use predictions uh, where coho should be vulnerable based on amount of urban impervious cover. And so we are coordinating field surveys uh, with many partners in Puget Sound to get out onto streams where our initial models are predicting coho should be vulnerable to ground truth those model results, which in turn will give us much greater confidence that we're on the right track. Julianne and Nat, thank you so much for speaking with us today and enlightening our listeners. Oh, it's our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. For our listeners, you've been listening to Julianne Spromberg and Nat Schultz discuss the phenomenon of pre-spawn mortality in coho salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Their paper is published in the October 2011 issue of IEAM. Just go to SeaTacJournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening.